What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Damp Valley coming at you with some more NBA talk. Before we cannonball in here, though, please, the usual reminder, continue subscribing to us wherever you consume us. If that's on YouTube and you're watching, hit that sub button. Also, comment and like. Help the algorithm love us back. If you're listening to us on a podcast player, Google, Spotify, Apple, whatever, please hit the permanent subscribe button if you have not downloaded every episode. Um, Cross-subscribe, too. Head over, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you're consuming us in a podcast player, or if you're on YouTube, go download our episodes from your um, podcast player as well. If you've done all those things and continue to do all those things in terms of commenting and liking videos or ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple, tell people about us. Retweet our promos on Twitter. You can shout us out on Twitter as well, and I will bump those uh, bump those once I do see them. Uh, that's it, though, for me. With all the housekeeping notes out of, out of the way, let's cannonball right in here. I thought it'd be interesting or not interesting. I thought it was necessary to do sort of a news pod. We haven't uh, the trouble with covering the entire league at large when it's not, it is my full-time job, but the podcast is not, is I don't know how struggling to go through every team as much as possible. I don't think I'll necessarily make these newsers. Uh, I think as the guys at dunked on called them very sort of like too consistent, but there's some stuff that's built up that I think is noteworthy. So if there's ever just a bunch of news and rumors nuggets, maybe I'll hop on to do that. Uh, we will begin with, I think, two tough topics that are going to be difficult to discuss, the first of which is Josh Primo from the San Antonio Spurs. They waived him on Friday night, and he cleared waivers as of Monday, which was Halloween. Uh, attorney Tony Busby told ESPN on Saturday that he had been retained by a woman who works for the Spurs and says Primo exposed herself himself to her. Busby and the woman who the name has come out, I believe, but I'm not throwing it out there, but Busby and the woman are set to have a news conference on Thursday morning where they're expected to address the the allegations. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with Tony Busby, ESPN noted that he represented multiple women in the sexual misconduct lawsuits against the Cleveland Browns and uh, Deshaun Watson. This topic is all sorts of tough, and you knew something was wrong the moment that he was released. Primo had his third-year option picked up. Um, and then was waived shortly thereafter. That just doesn't happen, especially for someone who is drafted at number 12 and still considered a tantalizing prospect for the organization. Um, it has come out that the allegations uh, are that he exposed himself to multiple women, that this doesn't seem like it's a one-off instance. Uh, he did release a statement to ESPN on Friday as soon as the news broke. Uh, he said that he had suffered previous trauma and will now take his time to focus on my mental health and treatment more fully. I don't i'm not dismissing any trauma that someone actually went through but that does not excuse this action of which he's exposing himself uh allegedly to a female employee and to have that put out there immediately while we're dealing with the slow drip of details overall just doesn't feel like the best look i don't know that we need to be in a rush to um put out these or it's not even put out but publish these statements from um, aggrieved parties when the entire story isn't known so that there's this reckless and rampant specu speculation that takes place thereafter. And there are people who are saying, well, I hope that Josh gets the help that he deserves and painting him as sort of the victim in that scenario. And I'm, this is not to say that he was not a victim at one point in his life of anything, but it's now it overshadows the fact or gets out first where there's these really serious accusations of him improperly exposing himself um, to multiple women within the organization. That's just an issue. And it like, that needs to be the focus here first and foremost. And we need to be myself included. And we need to be 
willing to learn and listen and understand if we're not presenting this in the proper context, where if there's criticism and what I'm saying about it, like I need to be able to sit and listen and try to figure out a way to where I'm equipped to at least discuss this, since I think it's noteworthy enough to mention, even if I'm not a sexual misconduct expert. That being said, this is pretty clear cut to me in the sense that I don't know that we would ever need that we ever should know the full details because does that put anyone else's safety at risk? But while the slow drip of what details we can know are coming out, uh, everything needs to be contextualized where there's just, when there's such an unknown cloud sort of surrounding something, why are we just putting out and, you know, promoting these statements before we know like even a shred of the entire story. And so it seems like there'll be a press conference on Thursday where we will learn a lot more. It's a super shitty situation. And my, condolences and heart and empathy are with just all the um, potential victims uh, in this Kyrie Irving uh, Kyrie Irving. So (laughs) Kyrie tweeted out a link to a movie without a caption in the tweet. And the movie itself is considered to be littered with anti-Semitic views and conspiracies. I have not watched the movie um, Rolling Stones, John Blystein did an article where he sort of delved into it. Pablo Torre of ESPN tweeted out a screenshot of the book that the movie is based on. It's written by the same director, and that director calls the fact that over 6 million Jews were killed during the Holocaust one of five major falsehoods. So I feel comfortable in saying that, yes, the movie book communicates anti-Semitic views. Um, he was asked about it at the a post-game press conference after the Nets lost to the Pacers. He was also asked about when he posted an Alex Jones video about the New World Order, um, and he defended posting that video just by saying the entire conspiracy surrounding secret societies is, it's, it's true, were his words. Uh, he did distance himself from um, Alex Jones's conspiracies surrounding, and his commentary surrounding um, Sandy Hook. I... Everyone, the, uh, my emotional response immediately was just one of disgust. And I think that that should have been the initial one for everybody. Um, Kyrie was combative in that post-game presser. And the response is, and to me, just the best way to sort of tackle it is to acknowledge what what the quote-unquote opposing stance has been. There were people that said, well, this isn't basketball questions. Why are they asking it? Uh, it's relevant. I know that people have an issue that... The NBA, it seems all the biggest storylines are what's happening off the court or their hypothetical trades, which we're actually going to get to in a minute. Shout out Miles Turner. Uh, I understand that. This is relevant when you're posting something so incendiary, something that can be harmful because you have this huge platform. And if people share or adopt their adopt those views, it's going to empower them. And it dehumanizes Jewish people based off those theories. And the other one of the other pushbacks that I received specifically because I put a tweet noting that one Kyrie said it's not a promotion and did not dehumanize him when he was going back and forth with ESPN's Nick Friedle. It's reasonable to assume it was a promotion or some show of support when there's just no caption and when you're not willing to answer questions about whether it was or not. Like if it wasn't, he's saying he's just putting it out there and it wasn't meant for people who are going to criticize it. That doesn't actually make any sense. And the other thing here is people constantly told, were saying to me, they were saying to others, well, why aren't people going after Amazon um, or Jeff Bezos for having this movie on their, their platform? Uh, one, no, Amazon isn't allowed to hide behind the cloak of capitalism or whatever you want to call it. But no one is out there saying that Amazon is this bastion of morality 
either. And so that's just disingenuous. And if that's where you're going with this, the other thing um, that I was seeing and that was said to me is, you know, why isn't there this much outrage over anti-black stances? And as soon as it becomes anything that's a hint of anti-Semitic, there's this uh, a wider spread outrage. There's probably a fair discussion to be had about what, you know, even going to the, the Kanye West stuff, why the reaction was as powerful as it was when there has been anti-black propaganda out there. And it does seem that when it comes to anti-Semitism, it might be stronger, but we could deal with this. We're talking about racism against uh, Asians as well. There's a conversation to be had that doesn't make this. Okay. What Kyrie was doing, everything that I just mentioned, all like anti-black stances, anti-Semitism, racism in general, uh, in general, excuse me, not acknowledging or refusing to, they're trying to strip away rights from, women or people are against the LGBTQIA plus community. All this shit is terrible. And just because one exists or one, there's a reaction on a larger scale, it doesn't make the other one right or okay. It's perfectly fine for people to be outraged by this and to feel like to their, to, to evoke some type of just angry emotion from this, especially given Kyrie Irving's response. And I, the whole dehumanization thing, it's not, it's, it's disingenuous here in this case with Kyrie Irving because he's in that press conference contradicting himself over and over again where he says that he's lucky enough to have this huge platform, but then this media builds it up so that he has this big influence. You don't get to have it both ways. And there is an inherent responsibility when you do have a platform as large as, as his or of any platform where if you're going to post something publicly and people want to ask you about it, you should be prepared to answer it. He wasn't prepared to expound on it. Nothing he said was coherent. Nothing he said justified in any way or explained what he was doing with the tweet, which by the way, just putting it out there, one is it's not a thing you put, there was no caption. Like then what were you trying to accomplish with it? If it wasn't a promotion or a show of support and two, he did delete it. I don't know. We'll hear, maybe we'll hear more about that. Eventually there was also uh, people sitting courtside at the Nets Pacers game tonight that said, I believe they had shirts on that said fight anti um, Semitism, and then there was an exchange with Kyrie, and he apparently said, "As per Brian Lewis of the New York Post, I believe um, that I I appreciate you all. I I don't know like that is you know it's I think it's fine that they were courtside. I but like him and the exchange with him, that's just so bizarre. My my overarching point here is though, there's if you're defending someone who has to qualify, like I don't agree with Alex Jones on him." Um, disseminating disinformation and conspiracies that were harmful to the families of the victims from Sandy Hook. But he made some good points about occults and secret societies. No, 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 that's not okay. It's not, you know, and the movie from this one of the screenshots that Pablo Torre printed out is cited as quoting Adolf Hitler from a secret document. So who knows if that's even accurate, but when they're quoting Adolf Hitler, that's akin to saying like, well, you know, like Adolf Hitler and mass genocide, that's not okay. Uh, you know, like, but he had like some really good tips on like how to groom your mustache or something. You don't provide leg legitimacy to people, uh, to, to those people. Like that's not okay. And so the fact that Kyrie Irving would, it doesn't matter. Forget about the content of the Alex Jones video that he posted just for, just for a second. It doesn't matter that it was a different topic um, compared to the Sandy Hook stuff, which Alex Jones has been forced to I think he was like the punitive damages or whatever. They were over a billion dollars that he's supposed to pay something ridiculous. Um, he's admitted to playing a character, but misleading people and making money off of it because he's playing that character um, on that dumbass Infowars show. So I, 
like you don't using that source is problematic in itself because he's Kyrie's talking about how this is from years ago. You know what that source has become. And I'm just, this is nothing to say of what Alex Jones was at that point, but you know what the source of has become what he did. You don't get to hide behind like, Oh, well, no, this was from beforehand and I don't share his views on that. It doesn't work like that. You need to find a different source then. And in this case, the subject matter is complete bullshit anyway. So there would have been holes poked in it to begin with. I thought there was a lot of smarter commentary on this than, than from me, um, like from other people on Twitter. And I think the whole uh, Kyrie sort of hiding behind this veil of cultural empowerment is, is just not fair. And it's disingenuous and it's not, you know, do I personally like Kyrie Irving? Absolutely not. But this is not the media personally attacking him. Like this is an actual issue. Um, Someone with his influence, with his platform, disseminating just disinformation at this scale on subjects that are just so sensitive and then just absolutely disgusting. It's, it's absolutely not okay. And I'm like disappointed, I guess would be the word that we haven't seen more NBA players or any NBA players, at least as far as I'm concerned, come out and speak out against this. That's something that I'll be looking towards. It's not, I'm going to point to someone and say, well, this and this and this and this, I think Kevin Durant, like kind of, you know, low key sucks throughout all this where he's saying, you know, in the post game presser, oh, it didn't impact us in the locker room, just you guys. Like, I, like that's just a low key shitty response. If he doesn't want to comment on it, like, I, like Kyrie Irving is technically not his responsibility, that's fine. Um, that just sucked too. And I'm not, look, I'm not perfect. Like, and, and no one's perfect. And it's not on, I'm not trying to be this arbiter of morality here. I'm not trying to virtue signal either. This is just act, actually pretty cut and dry. Like what Kyrie Irving did was absolutely fucked up. And his inability, his unwillingness to explain that, I think it just proves like this comes back to anyone who follows Dragonfly Jones on Twitter. Uh, he is essentially a clown with this stuff. Like he's a faux intellectual who, when he's pushed to have to um, comment or justify his stances, he can't or won't because he the assumption is um, that he his opinion is right or that he's the only one that needs to be talking and everyone else needs to be listening. He's not the smartest person in the room just because he is going against the grain is the kind of way the kindest way to put this and subscribing to these you know false realities and just absolutely dangerous conspiracy theories and I just I doubt this is the last that we've heard of of this topic. Um, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any disciplinary action for what Kyrie posted. And, on, you know, we saw what Joe Sai said on Twitter. Um, and then people are talking about like, oh, well, you come from a country that supports this and that. It's again, it's not it's not just because one thing is true. It doesn't make supporting the other OK. And it doesn't make it wrong to speak out against, which is not OK, like against the topic that is not OK. Uh to just would moderate. Those are my thoughts there. And I tweeted about it too, as I'm stammering through this whole thing. Uh, but the, the whole situation just act absolutely sucks. And again, Kyrie deleted the tweet, um, but it's absolutely disgusting that it was put out there in the first place. If he was going to put it out without a caption, there was a different reasoning behind it. He should have been prepared to explain it. It's not on anybody else other than him. Then if I'm going to post something that doesn't have a caption, this is not comparing myself to him but if i'm gonna do that and someone wants to ask me well why'd you post a link to this article and you didn't describe what it was about do you support it that's a fair this wasn't you can't retweets or not endorsements this shit because it was one a native tweet like it was your own tweet and there was no context there so it was fair game when it came to questioning and he was unwilling or incapable uh to rationalize why he posted it in the first place so the only reaction should just be one of disgust 
towards him and that entire belief and obviously anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism in general. And even if it's anti-black policies, like we went through all this, like racism is bad. Discrimination in general is bad. This is not hard to wrap your head around. And Kyrie Irving is not any smarter than you or I, just because he's traveling off the you know beaten path to this just absolute BS and having outrage over it does not make you, you know, over this. Is there a selective outrage? Yes. And there's a conversation we had about selective outrage, but it's okay to be outraged by this. It's absolutely okay to be outraged by this. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And if you're twisting yourself into a fucking pretzel to defend Kyrie Irving, just like Kyrie Irving has to disqualify something he posted about Alex Jones, who was you know disseminating all this misinformation about Sandy Hook, where children were slaughtered. Um, yeah, like maybe it's time to look yourself in the mirror and rethink what the fuck you're doing. And I'll end there. This is, there is no natural segue here. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, uh, he's going to miss at least the next six games with the Clippers, not going on their current road trip, Tyloo said. Uh, it's right knee management, they're calling it, from the partially torn ACL that he suffered um, before, uh, what was that, in the 20, that's the 2021 postseason now. Time is just such an odd concept for me to follow. Uh, Tyloo said Kawhi is frustrated, but he's also getting better. I don't really know what to make of this. My, you know, I don't want to panic about any team or any player at this point, but like, you know, the, the Clippers, it's been rough. The, the Lakers are the only team that are scoring fewer points per possession at the moment. Kawhi is obviously a huge part of their offense. He's dealt with all these injuries um, to his lower body in the past. And so it does make you concerned. He's on the wrong side of 30. And the fact that this is like, you know, it was a, a partially torn ACL. It wasn't considered the better scenario, but it, it was something that many wondered, oh, would he even have to miss the entire season while he recovered from it? Um, he did, and now it's just still not okay. He is, when he's been on the court, I think there's been a ton of moments where he's looked fine on the offensive end in particular, uh, but this team is not going to come anywhere near title contention if he's just not available. And what I will say, while we have made jokes about load management, and I always think there's an important line to toe here, like making fun of Anthony Davis injuries is super cringe. Acknowledging that he is injury prone or accident prone, however you want to call it, is absolutely fair game. Uh, this is like Kawhi didn't wake up as a two-time champion at one morning and just decide like, Hey, like I'm really not going to play during the regular season. Let's just rest up for the spring. These are guys that absolutely want to play. And so the fact that he's not, and we're at a point where like the games matter for the Clippers because they're, they're not a given in the West. The West is just so deep and brutal. Kawhi missing an extended period of time could absolutely derail their season. It just sucks. And I don't really have any other analysis on it other than that unfortunately i just hope he gets better so we could sort of see the western conference and close to its full form and hopefully all these elite supposed to be elite teams getting healthier and healthier this is something that's absolutely worth monitoring though because you know we're now he's going to now have missed just the majority of the games this season and even when he's playing the games there's you know they're still trying to work him in very slowly like this is someone who was coming off the bench it will be interesting to see how they handle this and when he actually returns. And do we perhaps get more definitive information on what's going on here? It's, I think it's, it's good to hear like, well, Kawhi's frustrated. That's not good to hear, but that he's getting better. I guess, I guess that is good to hear, but what does that actually mean? Okay. He's getting better, but he still missed most of, of this season. And he's not traveling with you. Just something to keep our eyes on. Miles Turner was on the uh, Woj pod with ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski he was asked point blank about the trade rumors involving him and the Lakers. And man, his answer was just, I had no idea this, this was out there. I subscribed to the Woj pod. Um, it's become like too much of just like 
propaganda for me, uh, you know, for agents and executives to listen to on a regular basis. That's if you like that cup of tea, the interviews, the guests he had are legit. We can't get Miles Turner on this podcast. More power to you, Woj. Um, I do like the, I enjoy when him and Bobby Marks do have their pods together. I will say that. Um, but like the question is just like, I couldn't believe it was asked. Caitlin Cooper, Vinnie Cornrose tweeted about it this morning, which is how it was brought to my attention in the first place. Uh, Miles Turner responded though. If I'm the Lakers, I take a very hard look at this position that you're in. I know what I can provide for a team, my leadership, my shot blocking, my three point ability, and just my ability to make plays out there on the floor. And I take a very long look at it, but as far as pulling the trigger, I get paid to shoot. I'm not paid to make these calls. So I couldn't answer that. We all know picks are so valuable in this league and someone like myself, I'm heading into last year of my deal and you want to make sure you're getting a return for your assets. Turner added a hat tip to Dave McMenamin of ESPN who transcribed that as well. My God, just being asked so directly about it, I guess is, is one thing. And it's also fair because Miles Turner has been in trade rumors for basically 10 years and he hasn't even been in the NBA for 10 years, but that's how long he's been in trade rumors, just flat out. Uh, so to ask him about it is fair for someone who's spending that much time in the the rumor mill him sort of talking about though, capitalizing on assets and being in the final year of his deal. That doesn't sound like someone who's going to even entertain coming back to Indiana this season. He's only ap appeared in two games at this recording, um, shooting a perfect of perfect 13 at the line, by the way, went back and watched. I wasn't watching it. I was his debut game or a second game. Um, and he was like hitting runners. I mean, like this miles turn on offense has been kind of fun to watch. I went back and watched his offensive possessions this season uh, we're talking about limited volume here, only eight three-point attempts, but he's made three of them, like shooting thirty them at a thirty-seven point five percent clip. The the rim protection IQ is is really just still there, and I always thought that he didn't receive enough credit for his mobility on the perimeter when he's defending. I think this is someone who's absolutely a difference maker. And oh hey, he's only in his age twenty-six season. He's dealt with a ton of injuries, and he's going to be a free agent, but he's still a hyper valuable player. Um, I, I, when it comes to the Lakers specifically, you can go back and look at or listen to all the content I put out on it. If push came to shove the buddy healed Turner framework, I probably would just give up the two first round picks. That being said, I'm at the point where, and this is on Rob Plink in the front office. I view the Lakers as sort of so hopeless that even giving up those two first round picks from Miles Turner and buddy healed doesn't make you a contender. And so now I understand the logic of you might as well just ride this out. Let the cap space sit until next summer when we'll still have our picks. Maybe we poach someone in, in free agency. So I, I probably lean towards that mode, but that like in the cold callous vacuum view, but then you look at it and it's LeBron is in his age 38 season. Uh, now is it his age 39? Why do I keep getting that, that mixed up? I'll check that really quick. We have LeBron who's about to turn 38. He's in his age 38 season. I was right. The first time always trust your instincts folks. Uh, unless your instincts lead you to post, um, you know, regurgitate something from Alex Jones and then claim to be a free thinker, even though you're just sort of, aggregating all the thoughts of these famous um, ass hattery conspiracy theorists. Sorry, I digress. Um, Miles Turner. Um, so still super valuable. We have LeBron in his age 38 season. You're obligated to go for it. And so I would say, just give it up at this point. Now, does waiting make it more likely the Pacers do this deal for just a pick or maybe a pick in a swap? I honestly have no idea. If the Lakers continue to free fall, you know, you get that win against the Nuggets. Russ has looked okay in two games coming off the bench. Maybe maybe you gain some leverage back here. Maybe you're just inclined to, well, we could still like make the plan or be, you know, like seven or eight or just be somewhat frisky. If we make it out of the plan and you're just content with that and punting on another year of LeBron being a star. And that's just not a given from season to season anymore. It just can't be at his age. Um, I would 
I, I get not making the deal now, even though like you had all offseason to kind of address more of your overarching issues than the Lakers actually did. They didn't need to be so guard addicted over the offseason either. But I, I have to also tilt towards you have LeBron. And so if you're not trying to win a title or play meaningful basketball into the spring, then what the hell are you doing? And right now, I don't think the Lakers are built for that. Uh, Miles Turner did also comment on like why it would be appealing to play for the Lakers. And he said, this is per the Woj pod. And it comes from Dave McMenamin uh, when he at, um, transcribed it for ESPN. Turner said, I just feel like here in the Midwest, we don't get the love that I think we deserve. It doesn't get taken on the national level. You are under the microscope out there at the West. When you are doing bad, you're going to hear about it. When you're doing great, you're going to get a lot of love, especially with the love that the Lakers get. I think that another aspect that is appealing is playing with greatness and playing under LeBron. I feel like he demands a certain level of excellency, especially at this point of his career. It's just one of those things. When you're out there, you got to perform. People are going to expect you to go out there and hold on to that legacy that the Lakers have built over the years. I don't, I find the answer completely innocuous here. And I, again, I think it's fair game because of how often or how relentlessly Miles Turner has been in the rumor mill. And so if, if teams are going to just include players like that, and we get to a point where he was basically traded to the Celtics at one point, I don't have a problem with them commenting on just these, you know, ceaseless trade rumors that are involving their name. Do I take this as him sort of campaigning to play for the Lakers? I don't know. It's just sort of surreal to have him talking this way so openly about the trade rumors. It'll be interesting to see where this winds up and if the Pacers actually get the full boat of the two first, should they go through with the deal or if Russ winds up on another team for a lesser cost on the Lakers part. I'm just, I'll be fascinated to see how it all plays out. I do think the Lakers are really going to try and push this to wait. Like if this happens before game, if any trade with Russ happens before the game, let's say between 12 and 15 of the season, I'll actually be fairly surprised because I really think that they're either trying to wait out the market, which it makes sense if you're hoping to gain some leverage. It doesn't make sense if you're thinking better offers are going to arise because the Lakers best offer while it's steep for them, it can be beaten by so many teams. And so if better players become available, you're just going to miss out on them for teams that are, that can and will offer more and can give a draft pick that comes sooner than one of the next five drafts. Boyan Madonna signed a two year, $39.1 million extension with the Pistons. That does not sound like a lot on the surface. It sounds like even less when, um, only 2 million of the final season of that extension is guaranteed. Just a no brainer here for me. Um, Boyan Madonovich is shooting like a trillion percent from the floor has really opened up the Pistons offense in the half court for them. Um, their effective field goal percentage rises by like seven points when he's on the court. I think when you have that type of outlet, it, it streamlines development for all the kids that are within this ecosystem. And it's, you know, it's Cade having more space to operate. Ditto with um, Jaden Ivey, the, the room that Jalen Duren in certain lineups has to roll to the basket. If you go back and watch, like having just Bowman Madonna, in addition to him just stroking three after three after three, it's a good fit. And he doesn't compromise whatever the Pistons are trying to do. If it's, yeah, we eventually want to enter the play-in discussion this season, then he becomes a player who's valuable to that. If it's, well, we kind of want another high draft pick. He's just not going to be the guy that single-handedly derails that. Another interesting note, though, just given the nature of this extension, uh, they still can immediately trade him. So that's this is not like a given that he um, stays in, in Detroit through this season, unless I'm mistaken there. But under terms of this extension, when you look at it, and they were limited by the extension rule since he was traded, uh, I believe that he can be immediately traded. So that, that might be something to monitor, but that's just that's a fair price to pay if you're the Pistons and want to keep him. And I think there's value in just having someone who opens up the floor as reliably for specifically I'm looking at, I mean, even Isaiah Stewart a little bit, but Jalen Duran, Kate Cunningham, Jay Nivey, who are the three most important players in the building for Detroit.
Uh, Blake Wesley, we'll wrap up here before we get to, I have, I'll throw out an MVP ladder. How about that? Anyone enjoy MVP ladders early season? Um, comes from Tom Orsborne of the San Antonio Express News. Uh, sources confirm that Blake Wesley is expected to miss six to eight weeks with a torn NCL he suffered in Sunday's game against the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, the MRI performed on Monday revealed the MCL tear. The X-Rise were negative initially on Sunday night. Uh, that sucks. He's a rookie. The Spurs are built. To, he hadn't played a ton. I think that was only his second appearance of the season, Wesley, for the Spurs. But, like, the Spurs are rolling out their youngsters, and so to have this type of setback uh, when there are minutes potentially open now uh, in the backcourt without Josh Primo there just kind of blows. Um, so uh, we'll have to monitor that, see hopefully he just gets healthy, and this is someone who was built in the NBA as, you know, coming into the NBA, excuse me, like, he can – take and make some some difficult shots and the spurs there's still that deficit as impressive as keldon johnson and devin vassell have been this offseason there's still sort of that and now that primo the player on the court is gone you sort of look at the structure of their team and they don't have that obvious from scratch playmaker slash shot maker could it be trey jones could it be malachi branham um perhaps but like is that would would uh would Blake Wesley have given you any of that? So I don't know, but blows. Hopefully he's healthy soon. We get to see him on the court. The Spurs have been kind of fun to watch this season. They're blowing expectations out of the water already, just like the the Utah Jazz. So that's been pretty fun. Um, how about an MVP ladder early season? I'm tasked with doing these every two weeks for Bleacher Report. I don't think I'll spam you with them every two weeks, but the first one is always difficult, just because you know. And I'll throw it up on the screen for um people who are watching along on YouTube and we'll get to honorable mentions. I did a top five and then I actually fleshed out a top 10. Uh, what's so interesting though, about doing an MVP ladder right now, when we're fewer than eight games into the season for everybody, um, the, the MVP ladders are both brutal and beautiful. The margin of separation is so terribly terrifically thin that it makes ironing out a definitive hierarchy, rewardingly wrenching. And it's basically the, you know, Tony Horton P90X. I hate it but I love it video, which is what I posted when I was knee deep in, in writing it because it was so tough. Um, as a reminder, like the first MVP ladder of this season is based on everything I have seen. And we have seen entering games on Halloween. I did not take those games into account. Uh, even though I just watched the Raptors absolutely slaughter the Hawks. The game was sort of close though, like for three and a half quarters, there is a, a dash and dab of is so-and-so's performance sustainable peppered throughout the final pecking order beyond that though. I'm not really trying to project, what also makes this difficult, interpretations of the NBA's MVP award vary across the board. How much How much should team success reflect the selection? Does a player's case get diluted um, by uh, by having... Excuse me. Does a player's case get diluted by having enviable talent around him? Should players receive pomp and circumstance for lifeline usage and thriving within a shallower supporting cast? Uh, I just... I can't pretend to have all the answers here. And I've always sort of viewed... The MVP ladder is just, okay, which player uplifts his team the most? Circumstances be damned. Where, yeah, it matters what Jokic did with the Nuggets, two of their three best players out last season. But, like, if you're also uplifting a team, a better team, but you're still uplifting them a crap ton, it's arguably harder to take a really good team to great, to title contender status, to take what would be a team that sucks without you to like, oh, they're they're like respectable or they're they're really good. That jump is just a little bit easier to make than the one that I just outlined. And so I try to just view it through who uplifts his current team the most and would do so in nearly any other situation. Make no mistake, though, this order is going to change throughout the year. No one is untouchable right now, even though I think number one is pretty clear cut. 
Um, and I considered over 15 names just across the top five. Winnowing that list down was painful. Rest assured, I thoroughly hate myself. Um, so just very brief recap. Instead, or like always, this ranking is meant to reflect a snapshot in time, what my ballot would look like if the season ended right now, which thankfully it does not because after this should be obvious number one entry, things get debatable as hell. Uh, we start, though, with the honorable mentions, and which is basically 10 through 6 for me. I have Damian Lillard at 10 for the Blazers. Here's every player averaging more points per possession out of isolation than Damian Lillard. That's it. That's the entire list you just heard. That's not Lillard's entire case. He remains an offensive cheat code across so many different usage types, and his defensive energy is picked up to boot. A calf injury that's going to keep him sidelined for a bit, um, with, coupled with an offense that is less dependent on him to create everything and anything for everyone this season, that dragged him down, but not yet outside the top 10 for me. He's been absolutely spectac spectacular when you look at his, his scoring and in terms of spearheading how good the Blazers actually are. Number nine, Pascal Siakam of the Toronto Raptors. Did Pascal Siakam get better again? He sure did. Even when his finishes aren't falling, his attack mode is just this great weapon. He has more counters than ever when probing and doesn't get thrown off balance or out of his dribble when faced with congestion. The catch and shoot three for now is back. He's hitting them at a 42 plus percent clip. He's getting to the line at a career high clip as well. And few players rival his overall offensive importance and efficiency to wit. Luka Doncic and Trey Young are the only other players matching Siakam's usage and assist rate while committing turnovers on fewer than 13% of their possessions. That's big time, folks. Uh, Nikola Jokic checks in at number eight for me. Yes, Jokic's scoring numbers have dipped. And sure, he needs to be taking and making more threes. And no question, the Nuggets lost to the Los Angeles Lakers is clearly unforgivable. And duh, I fully recognize Jokic has no chance of actually winning this award because voter fatigue is a thing. Still, let's collectively agree to not write off 20-plus points and 8-plus assists per game from an offensive lifeline, drilling 69% of his twos, especially when Denver continues to comfortably outstrip opponents with Jokic on the floor. They are outscoring them by more than 7 points per 100 possessions. Number 7, I'm not sure if this is going to surprise people. It's Shea Gildas-Alexander from the Oklahoma City Thunder. That is not a mistake. SGA is having an absolutely monster season. Averaging 31 points and 7 assists per game on better than league average true shooting while hardly ever turning the ball over and subsisting almost entirely on self-created looks is no joke to me. And right now, the Thunder aren't funny either. They are hell on earth to face. And though the offense remains clunky, it hovers above league average with SGA on the court. Above league average, which when you look at the talent surrounding him still, that's really fucking impressive. Also, when he's on the floor... The Thunder outscoring opponents by 12.6 points per 100 possessions. He's ratcheted up on defense this season as well. That team is going to be tough to play. I don't expect him to stick here all year just because do I think the Thunder eventually like throw in the towel? I mean, maybe. I, I, I guess they could like keep Shea in there all year. I still expect some weird stuff to happen, I will say. But he absolutely deserves to be in the top 10 right now. And like, you can't, oh, it, you can make the joke that the Thunder sucked. And there are people that have watched way more than the Thunder than I have this season. But I've, I've watched the Thunder this season. And those dudes, it's not just a matter of trying. Like, Shea Gilders Alexander is so talented and there's substance to what he's doing. The Thunder have been actually good when he's on the court. And they've been actually good overall this season. Number six might surprise some people, Steph Curry. Steph going kaboom is among the NBA's most enduring constants. And despite the Warriors' awkward start, 
he'd be a shoe in for the top five if three of his past four outings didn't feature this lackluster outside shooting. I will say I am I do tend to sometimes cite net rating swings. I try and avoid them too much in this discussion because we have to move beyond that. I, I am sort of wondering if Steve Kerr is single-handedly campaigning for Steph to have the biggest net rating swing in the NBA by having James Wiseman on the floor when Steph Curry is not, because that really helps Steph's net rating swing, uh, just in case anybody cares about those things. Let's get to the top five, though. So number five, Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns. I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast will be particularly surprised that I have him here. Uh, I think he may have had a case. He went cold from three the past two games, so maybe that bumped him down a bit. But giving the final spot to Booker, not easy. Steph could be here. Ditto for Siakam and Jokic. Ditto for Dame and, and SGA. At the same time, Booker himself could also be higher to me. He's averaging 29.3 points and 5.5 assists while banging in 60% of his twos, including a 56% clip from mid-range for a Phoenix Suns team that has retained its status as a well-oiled machine. What's more, Booker has never been more pivotal to that machine. Chris Paul isn't off to the cleanest start. Cam Johnson began the season battling hip issues. And while the bench has been surprisingly strong, the Suns remain without Jay Crowder, who's their sixth best player or should be their sixth best player. Maybe, well, I guess their third best player is Jacques Landale. So, but you get, you catch my drift there. Booker is averaging 10.5 potential assists per game. That's his highest since the pre-CP3 era, and it's a significant uptick over last season's 8.4. So much of the Suns' offense is now tethered to his decision-making out of double teams and from the in-between. Opponents are doubling him on 31.9% of his possessions, which is one of the, I think, 10 highest marks in the league when I was checking. Um, they are The Suns are only scoring 1.0 points per possession out of those double teams, but Booker's ability to find outlets like DeAndre Ayton in those situations has helped Phoenix navigate various slumps from certain players and just stay afloat. Booker is also shooting 60% on 15.8 drives per game while notching what would be a career-best free throw attempt rate. Like I said at the top, two consecutive ice-cold games from distance kept Booker outside the top four and barely in fifth because that's how this shit works right now when we're only you know six, seven games into the season. But the offhanded comments you hear about his defense no longer being a weakness are accurate. And in the early going, he's elevated the Suns' point differential per 100 possessions by 25.7 when he's on the court. That is, again, I don't lean on these, but that is the highest mark of anyone who's going to appear in the top five. We are on to number four, and we have John Morant of the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, I guess you can consider this my latest apology to the Grizzlies, who I just continue issuing apologies too, for being so wrong about them. Spectacle ensues every time John Morant attacks, not really because he's a human poster, but for the unpredictability with which he now plays. Will he go for the monster finish? Slow down, get a defender on his hip and finish with a much too easy or impossibly angled scoop layup. Seamlessly slide back for a double clutch jumper. Loft or thread a dime to his rolling big. The offensive armory from which Morant pulls has never been deeper. That includes his three ball. He won't shoot 61% on above the break triples forever, but leaving him under ten, unattended is no longer tenable recourse for defenses. To that end, the Memphis Grizzlies currently lead the league in points scored per possession outside garbage time per cleaning the glass. Fewer than 10 games isn't much to go off, but no reasonable mind had them here five plus outings into the season. And the John Morant power minutes haven't only been better, they include a half court offense that ranks inside the 73rd percentile of efficiency. Memphis's aggregate success takes center stage most of the time. It should. The Grizzlies collectively traffic in defying expectations. But this year's defense is off to a rocky start without Jaron Jackson Jr. And the impressive 
Santi Aldama ranked second on the team in total minutes. Again, Santi Aldama, been impressive. He's still second on the team in total minutes. These are not picturesque circumstances, which makes Morant's 32.6 points and 6.7 assists on the highest true shooting percentage, 66.2, that you'll see within this discussion, much more impressive and that much more mission critical to what Memphis is doing. Number three on here, we're, this was tough. I'm not going to lie. Luka Doncic. I'm, I think this might be in the minority. I'm not sure. And I kind of hope it's not because I don't try to be purposely incendiary. Figuring out where to place Luka was and is and might remain a struggle. On the one hand, his 36.7 points per game lead the association. He pairs that distinction with 8.7 assists per game and a jaw-jutting 65% conversion rate inside the arc. The level to which the Mavericks depend on him still shouldn't exist. His 40.9 usage rate would be the second highest in NBA history behind only 2016-2017 Russell Westbrook, who, by the way, won MVP honors. And yet, Doncic partners this historical centrality with a turnover rate south of nine. The word you're looking for here is, what the fuck? Those are words. So how? The word you're looking for is how. It shouldn't be possible to blend the degree of difficulty on so many of his passes with such economical possession control. On the other hand, Doncic is so far shooting a career-low 22.6% from three, and his offensive monopolization directly, directly contributes to the Mavericks altogether punting on transition and any sort of variable cadence whatsoever. How much of a bump should he get for his one-man showism? And how much of a pass does he warrant for Dallas's rocky start? Pretty big ones on both fronts, if you ask me. The Mavericks appear to be in self-discovery mode given some of the rotation decisions Jason Kidd has made. That's not on Doncic, who, despite the departure of Jalen Brunson, a woefully predictable crunch time and late clock structure, and frankly, too much fucking JaVale McGee, continues to somehow, some way, anchor a top five offense. Number two, Donovan Mitchell of the Cleveland Cavaliers. I would not have bet on this, even if you told me it was going to happen. I don't care uh, how early in the season it is. My mega controversial take here, and I want people to stop what they're doing and sit down so that they can hear this. The Cleveland Cavaliers were smart to trade for Donovan Mitchell. I'm very glad to get that off my chest. I hope it doesn't anger too many, but that is my mega controversial take. Though the Cavs have cobbled together a more effective bench rotation than I expected, which related, holy crap, Kevin Love, Mitchell has been the life force for an offense that ranks sixth in points scored per possession, despite playing almost entirely without Darius Garland and experimenting with imperfect solutions at the three. On another related note, that Dean Wade extension was highway robbery by Cleveland. He's fantastic. The numbers here speak deafening volumes. Mitchell is averaging 32.2 points and 7.3 assists while knocking down 52.6% of his twos and a sanity-shattering 45.5% of his threes. He's thrown more errant passes than normal, but that comes with figuring out timing and fit with a completely new team, missing the primary playmaker off which you were supposed to operate. At this moment, I don't think there's a hotter rim and three scorer in the league. Mitchell is shooting 73% at the basket and 62% on 16.3 drives per game. And his 52.9% clip on off-the-dribble threes leads the field of everyone who's attempted at least 15 of those looks. Whether Mitchell can maintain this pace is a matter of course. There is no ceiling on the 2022-2023 Cavs, but the complexion of the offense will change once Garland rejoins the rotation. Mitchell's singular excellence may pull back as a result. I'd still bet against it materially dissipating here. Number one, you know it, I know it, at least we all should know it, Giannis Antetokounmpo. 
I just, I don't have, I'm going to try and give some words to this, but Giannis Antetokounmpo is beyond words. He's relentlessly dominant everywhere against everyone without fail. There continues to be an unprecedented unstoppability with which he plays. Can he fall to in love with the mid-range from where he's shooting 29%? Yeah, sure. He can also flip a switch and resume attacking the basket in what opposing defenses can only describe as hopelessly unguardable avalanches. It has become a cliche to wonder aloud whether the mothership will ever, ever call him home and ruin the NBA experience for all of us, quite frankly. That doesn't make it untrue. His numbers shouldn't exist in this timeline or dimension. Through five games, he's averaging 34.4 points, 14 rebounds, 5.8 assists, and 1.6 blocks while downing 65.2% of his twos and an ah, what the hell, why not, 35.3% of his threes. The defense is as standout as ever. Has there ever been a more effective weak side helper or someone seemingly so emotionally invested in the outcome of every possession he takes each basket personally? I'm not sure, but I do know Giannis once again ranks among the best high-volume stoppers at the rim. And more importantly, I know that the Milwaukee Bucks sit atop the East and the entire NBA without Chris Middleton or Pat Connaughton because of Giannis. That is my MVP ladder, top 10. Let me know what you think in the comments, in my mentions, whatever. Please remember to subscribe um, on YouTube, on your podcast player, download every episode from the podcast player, interact with us, join our Discord. The link to that is in the podcast and YouTube descriptions if you want to go more in depth and um, help with the community or interact with the community that we've been building. Lots of good conversations happening there. Maybe as we even record this, really think about that. Follow us on the socials, which are both in the podcast and YouTube description. Until next time, I'll give you the shout out to the one, the only, the guy who just missed this MVP ladder because he's on his own MVP ladder. Because there needs to be a number better more superior than one. That is Frank Neal Aquino.